Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When do we take control of our lives and our destiny? We're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. You know what I did on Saturday? I watched the first half of the Dublin Mayo game. And then I went to boil the kettle at half time, as you do. And then I said, will I bother my Barney going back for it? Because we all know what's going to happen. <laughs> How wrong was I? How wrong was I? 1850-715-996. Good morning, of course. Uh, the lads on the proc never missing an opportunity to uh, try to convince themselves that I have Mayo connections when I have absolutely none. So I said I'd give them a mention this morning, first thing out of the box, because they were at it. Straight away at the weekend, but it is all in the best possible taste, as Kenny Everett once said. If you haven't heard of Kenny Everett, ask your dad. Ask your dad. Good morning to you. Monday morning has been a busy weekend. It's been a tragic weekend on the international front. That story developing, continuing developing story in Afghanistan. Uh, horrific thought. Just spent the whole weekend thinking about the women and children. What? Are they going to do? What is going to happen to them now? It's a horrific development. Looking on, watching it unfold over the weekend. And tomorrow on the programme, I'll be talking to a Cork-based expert in, in all things Islam and who has done extensive research on Afghanistan and the development of the Taliban uh, and who predicted this, who reckoned that this was bound to happen. So that'll be on tomorrow's programme. Also, the the Minister for Foreign Affairs has been speaking this morning about the Irish in Afghanistan, and we'll catch up with that shortly. But to begin with, uh, I'm a little bit worried about the numbers, the COVID case numbers at the weekend, even though so many of us are now vaccinated. It's, it's damn near 80% of us now are fully vaccinated. That is brilliant. But we still had, we broke 2,000 over the weekend. It came down to about 16, 1,700 new cases yesterday. Paul Reid 
from the HSE has been saying that there's a possibility now you could have 400 people in hospital within a couple of weeks if these high numbers of daily cases continue. And look, it's worrying. It's not frightening, it's just worrying. And and uh, let's catch up with uh, with someone we've spoken to many times on the programme over the last couple of months to see is there any reassurance out there or are our worries founded or unfounded? I speak of Professor Liam Fanning, uh, Professor of Immunovirology at UCC. Liam, the numbers at the weekend look a bit scary. Are, are, are we right to be worried or should we just be mindful? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Um, I suppose a little of both, maybe, might be the best way of putting it. Um, At the moment, uh, where Ireland is, with respect to its pandemic or uh, endemic uh, COVID-19 infection at the moment, is that the infections that we're seeing are largely amongst the unvaccinated. Um, And, you know, we have seen that, you know, most individuals above uh, 50 years of age, nearly 100% of them vaccinated, you know, um, and as you move down, it's slightly less. Well, in the next two or three weeks, we'll have over 70% of the 18 to 24-year-olds doubly vaccinated. So when you say we have uh, 80% doubly vaccinated and 90% with one shot, that's of the adult population. So we've got to bear that in mind all the time, PJ, when you're talking about concern or we'll say uh, mild worry about these figures. We have a little over two-thirds of the actual full population of Ireland vaccinated. So that gives you some perspective as to the, if you like, unvaccinated um proportion of the population that are left but we know that most of that population are uh, under 30 um, will likely have an uneventful COVID um, infection um, but we still have a group of those individuals who have underlying conditions and who will be vaccinated but who don't want to come in contact with friends who have the virus and may give Mm. it to them even though they're vaccinated so um, it's something to keep an uh, I mean we can keep an eye on it but we have to appreciate now that this is an infection of largely of the unvaccinated individual and if nothing else should give focus to individuals who are kind of slightly worried or concerned about side effects of vaccination and, and, and stuff, um, you know, the, the complications sometimes arising from COVID-19 infection are far worse than what you get from, uh, you know, mild sore arm with respect to um, vaccine or the very rare cases of myocarditis and such. So, you know, there's, there's also, um, I suppose, positivity to be taken from these numbers as well, PJ, mm. in that if we didn't have vaccination, and the numbers of the population vaccinated, uh, those numbers could be, you know, in the order of what we saw from January. We could yeah. be 8 and 10,000. We, we'd be headed for lockdown if it wasn't for the success of vaccination. Am I right? Well, I think we'd be in it. I don't think we'd be heading for it. I think we'd be in it. Um, and uh, so, you know, so there's, very, there's there's positivity within those kind of 2000s as well. You know what I mean, PJ? Yeah. Really? We've done and, and I suppose it's job. important to stress, Liam, like the vast, vast, vast majority of those will have little more than a snuffle and a cough. Correct, PJ. Correct. Absolutely. But what we re- So our target now is of the quarter of a million that are between 12 and 15, we have 72,000 of them after signing up to the portal. We need the remainder to sign up and get vaccinated. Why? So, you know, because we have to protect the social development of these young children, whatever about schooling, and that's, of course, really important and all, social development, their mental health, their friends, their buddies, their GAA, um, whatever sport they're playing, they're swimming, that all needs to kick in again. And vaccination is the one sure way of helping them do that because what we've heard from the Department of Education is that if you're vaccinated and you're a young person in secondary school um, and there's an, a positive in, in the class, you won't have to go home. But if you're unvaccinated, you will have to go home. That means mum or dad or a parent or guardian has to probably take time off to get you tested 
and you know the collateral uh, impact then on the family dynamic and family workings. Never mind the education, sociability, yeah. and socialising of the child. So you know, you know, within those numbers, there's real sense of you know these vaccines are working. So I would encourage parents and guardians to really look at verified information on the HSE website as to why it's of value to, and yeah. in their particular family circumstances, PJ, you know. Like also, the proportion of people, and Paul Reid is right, of course, as the daily figures go up, you, you, you are going to have a proportion of people ending up in hospital. Now, that proportion is minuscule compared to where we were in January, and, and that's saving us too. It is, absolutely, and I, I suppose at the back of his mind is that even though the numbers are large, you know, they're, they're, prob- they're still impacting on the delivery of healthcare, no yeah. matter what way you look at it. Like, if we didn't have COVID, we'd be back with our usual waiting list. But now we have COVID and additional waiting lists and deferred care. You know, it's also, what these figures also show, though, PJ, is that we're going to, you know, we're in this luxurious position, I suppose, of having to have social conversations about masks, you know, whether you know your colleagues are vaccinated or not, you yes. know, and those tricky issues. Um, for moving from the comfort of masks and social distancing into what we had two years ago um, and, you know, meeting your co- colleagues at the water cooler or having for coffee. And, you know, if you know they're vaccinated, well, then you're all as a group, you know, you're, 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 you're protecting each other. But it's the, because this is an infection of the unvaccinated individuals, we're going to have to start having a conversation about yeah. how do we deal with and work with colleagues who won't tell other colleagues that they're vaccinated um, or that they're not vaccinated and won't say because that gives a sense of you know that's a perverse incentive for someone to to have kind of control over the work environment now that's a rather unusual situation but you know we don't want to be working towards protecting ourselves from the very few that are not vaccinated like they're our risk then they become our risk BJ Mm. let's not let's let's not sugarcoat this they will become the large risk for most of the population we were talking here last week about the situation with regard to, to schools and personally, you know, my, my kids are finished school, but I was thinking in terms of parents with children going back to school last week, who have, or next month rather, who have effectively been told by the Department of Education, and I'm paraphrasing and I stress that, they've effectively been told by the Department of Education, you do not have the right to know whether your child's teacher is vaccinated. Is that acceptable, Liam? Oh, yeah, that's a, now that's a loaded question. It, it is a loaded question. But it is a loaded question, but take it from two perspectives. One, health and safety, and one, one, one's own integrity to the privacy of your medical uh, information. So there's, there's the two things. From a health and safety perspective, you know, uh, what we, we know is that individuals who are unvaccinated are more likely to be infected than those individuals who are vaccinated. So therefore, they are everybody else's risk. So therefore, they should continue to wear masks. They should continue to social distance. And if there is an outbreak in the class, they should remove themselves from it for the appropriate period as a direct contact. So that has implications then for the education of the pupils. Um, take secondary, school, secondary schools. They will all largely be vaccinated, hopefully. And if for some reason an individual cannot be vaccinated, teachers you just mentioned, well then, you know, uh, some consideration has to be given as to whether that teacher should be, you know, uh, close to students who um, are vaccinated. So they've done their bit. And, you know, some people just can't get vaccinated. You know, maybe they're just at the early stages of pregnancy and they haven't passed that 14-week period where they can get vaccinated. And I think we must accept, we must accept that there will always be a tiny cohort who physically cannot be vaccinated. We must always accept that. Correct. And they will probably have to continue with the social protection measures that we've become accustomed to to protect themselves from others. In other words, the mass, the social distance may be working remotely. And I suppose that comes down to then if you have an individual who cannot get vaccinated, we'll say long term in the workforce, 
do they are they allowed to work at home or is it even possible for them to work at home continuously um, mm. in the absence of engagement with um, and working with colleagues? Because I suppose work is not just about work. Work is about doing those parts of your job that are not even on your job description, you know, answering queries from colleagues, you know, helping training in individuals, all this. So it's not just about um, uh, teaching or it's not just about, you know, deliver, you know, being a mechanic or whatever. It's about the other things that you do as part of your job mm-hmm. as well, you know. So it, it, it will be a very tricky nuance when it comes to kind of me telling everybody, I have no problem telling everybody I'm vaccinated. Yeah. Um, and, um, and this is where the rub lies, DJ, is that people who are very forthcoming with their information are meeting maybe some individuals who are very private and don't want to. They may be vaccinated, they may not be vaccinated. And this is where we're going to have complications with respect to privacy of information, but also complications with respect to how one manages our workforce and protects everybody from mm. the unvaccinated individual who, after all, will be the greatest risk of acquiring COVID-19. This is, in, this is endemic now in the unvaccinated population. <laughs> and the further we squeeze that down, the less opportunity for the vaccinated to become infected. So there's a double win there. There there is a point, and look, I know you're not an epidemiologist, but epidemiology, epidemiologically speaking, God, I had to learn so hard to say that word, (laughs) is like we, we should now get to a point, should we not, where the vaccination will be so intense that the spread of the virus in the community will begin to automatically plateau and drop. Correct. Now, are we anywhere near that in your estimation? Well, in my estimation, we'll, this is where the absolute population number vaccinated is more important now than the actual number of adult population. You know, 80% yeah. doubly vaccinated, 90%. But that's of the adult population. We're about two-thirds. But if we, only, if we vaccinated everybody above 12, PJ, we will still have around about 900,000 individuals under 12 who will be unvaccinated. Now, I know that the, the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer and Moderna, are due to lodge their documents with the FDA towards the end of September, beginning of uh, October, for the 5 to 11-year-olds. And that will be another conversation that parents, that if it is approved by the EMA and then on, subsequently by NIAC, um, that parents should have, you know, it's time to be thinking about, well, if the vaccine was available for a 5 to 11-year-old, do I sit down with my 5 to 11-year-old and explain to them the value of having this done and that the parent or guardian, mum or dad, or whoever is the, the person talking to them, you know, gives them the information and discusses with them in an age-appropriate manner, and then obviously the parent or guardian makes the ultimate mm. decision. But, you know, if you include, you know, them in the conversation, I, you know, I think we'll have as much an enthousi- of enthusiasm as we've seen with the uh, 12 upwards. Now, that's some way off yet, PJ. Yes. But we will still see, if they're never, vac- never offered the vaccine, um, then we will have roughly about 800,000, 900,000, which is approximately a fifth of our population. So even if we get 100% of everybody else, that's still 80% of the population vaccinated. So, you know, um, it's this kind of magic figure of herd immunity or even kind of, you know, national protection against COVID-19 and, and protecting our hospitals. We will need to see where this lies, if we, as many as we can get. And this is where it comes down to, I suppose, if we're meeting a kind of 5-10% that just will not get vaccinated. Whatever about taking aside those that can't get vaccinated, mm-hmm. but those that will not for whatever reason. Uh, is there a, a case for discussing mandatory vaccination in, 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 in some groups, in some parts of society, where you know, there's just a refusal to get vaccinated and there isn't an appropriate workaround? Yeah. Um, with them at the, at the where, where, where do you stand on mandatory, Liam? Um, at the moment, we don't need it, but I'm very much open to a discussion on it. Should we hit that kind of brick wall and we end up with a percentage of the population that's too high 
for us as a, as, a, as a nation to kind of cope with endemic COVID-19. And that's still feeding in, you know, numbers into ICU. That's the health system, which has been under-resourced for years, cannot cope with. It's getting better, but you know what I mean? So it, it, this is going to be, you know, how the hospitals can cope with the level of, we'll say, where, where we're going to plateau. Because we're going to, you know, where we've been on a, an ever-increasing curve with respect to positivity for vaccination. That's going to plateau off at some stage as we get everybody vaccinated. Mm. That, you know, there's going to, and so when we're left with that particular small group, it very much depends on the impact on the health service that, that those ongoing rumbling endemic infections have, PJ. Um, I suppose, personally speaking, you know, from a, a work perspective, you know, uh, un, unvaccinated individuals will still have to, in my opinion, continue to wear masks. And if the individuals are not declaring, I suppose it's best for a work, you know, best to assume um, rightly or wrongly that they're unvaccinated. I know people can, you know, are, have the right to privacy and integrity with respect to their, their own personal data. But from a collegial workforce perspective, um, mm. those that are unvaccinated will be able to mix freely. Those that are not declaring are unvaccinated will surely have to wear masks and maybe not allow them into the workforce or else have to, you know, socially distance. So we will see, you know, we will see some bleed over into the work dynamic, I think, PJ. And, you know, you know, this is we've seen a complete block or absence on antigen testing as a capacity to kind of, you know, further enhance and I suppose... Although the, I think the they're going to start using that in the colleges, are they, they not? They, they are, no, they are very much so. Uh, um, and I have, uh, you know, uh, excellent colleagues in UCC who are kind of uh, uh, pushing that forward. And, you know, that's going to be very helpful. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, we, we, through, for whatever, we, we know the reasons, um, you know, that there's not going to be freely available antigen testing. But as this virus is pushed and pushed and pushed more into the unvaccinated, um, we will end up having to have a conversation about, you know, where does the unvaccinated fit in? And is it going to impact on our maybe losing the masks or a directive from government to say that, well, masks are now optional and, you know, you can choose to wear them if you wish. Uh, if we mm. have reached that, you know, everybody above 12, which we'll say is about 80% of our population vaccinated, you know, or most of them, um, then, we, you know, we, we really have to have conversations about, can you know, do we need, masks should be made mandatory at that, or sorry, voluntary at that stage. Yeah. There's um, a piece in the Irish Times this morning, I was going through it, it uh, that says that public health officials uh, are, are discussing a number of things at the moment. We They think we'll need to have uh, masks in shops and public transport and stuff until at least next spring, but that they may be able to ease off uh, in, in other places and that if the R number gets down to one or below, we can start to, to ease up significantly. Okay, so on the on the masks, and so I suppose what, what that's kind of slightly hinting at too is that we're coming into maybe a flu season. We've seen enough in New Zealand and in America, they've had a resurgence of a virus that's abbreviated to RSV. It's basically like a head cold type virus, but it actually impacts on some young kids quite significantly. Um, and um, so we don't know in the unvaccinated what it's going to be like for uh, an individual who's co-infected with COVID-19 and perhaps maybe RSV or influenza. You know, you have a double whammy there mm. on the lungs and on the systemic system. So we have no idea about that. And, you know, 
So public health and the mask, we've seen last year we had hardly any flu whatsoever. But that was primarily as a result of, yes, some of the, the, the public health measures. But we, the, the flu, flu wasn't circulating in as much uh, as uh, globally last year anyway. And that was primarily as a result of there being a, you know, a weak enough flu or influenza season or respiratory virus season mm. in the southern hemisphere. Because Plus we all social us. distancing and washing it's, our hands it, to the exactly. bone. Yeah. Well, yeah, but also globally there was much less of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... This year, I think we'll see the signs of uh, the beginnings of the resurgence of kind of some of those respiratory viruses. And perhaps the following winter, we might have what's called to repay back some of this immunological debt. In other words, we're not as immune as we used to be because we weren't always being exposed to these. Yeah. And we don't generate really effective long term memory and immune memory on these. So um, I think the wearing of masks um, should be made optional once when we hit that kind of magic figure of about 80% of the total population. Um, because let's face it, the, the, the discussion for the under 12 is a bit mute at the moment because yeah. we don't have VMA approval. So the most we can get if we got everybody vaccinated is about 80% PJ. So, um, and, and maybe the vulnerable under, under 12, they might kind of make an exception for that. But we remember we'll also have uh, plenty of individuals who were vaccinated last January. So they may need uh, booster Boosters. shots, yeah. Uh, yeah. which should, which, which should, and I think Paul Reid has said this in the, so far as possible, the vote abundance with the flu vaccination program, which you know again uh, I would uh, implore people to consider getting the flu vaccine this year as well. Okay. You know they may not have in other years, but please you know consider it from a national perspective and La- your own family. That's Liam briefly to come back to where we started with this one, Liam Fenning. Uh, numbers are uncomfortably high day to day at the moment. Cause for concern or cause for caution? Cause for caution. You know, I mean, we have a watching brief on this. Uh, we have 80% of the adult population doubly vaccinated. We're moving into trailers. We're in an extremely good position. But nobody wants to see our hospitals overrun coming in if we got a nasty flu season or something come on top of that. So cause for just, you know, keep watching me. Plead people who are unvaccinated. Mind yourselves. Social distance. Do the mask. You know the mantra. Uh, protect yourselves and protect others. And go for the vaccine. All right, listen, Liam. Thank you very much, Professor Liam Fanning. He's Professor of Immunovirology at UCC. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96FM. The 25th Annual Cope Foundation Golf Classic Fundraiser takes place on the 19th and 20th of August at Monkstown Golf Club. With a list of incredible prizes to be won, teams of four are invited to book a place for this year's event. More information can be found at cope-foundation forward slash golf classic. If you have an event you would like mentioned, email corkdiary at 96fm.ie Mag's life's professor Liam Fanning, she said, uh, telling it as it is but with zero scaremongering more of this. Well Mag's, since day one we have avoided uh, scaremongering, we've stuck with the science I know that sometimes what we have to say might not be pleasant, but we've stuck with it as best we can. And you're right, Liam Fanning always has a very positive view of things. Uh, This message thus says a lot, and I agree wholeheartedly with this. Unfortunately, people have become complacent. I see it coming home from work every night from my work in a hospital. People are not washing, not sanitizing their hands like they did. They're outside pubs on top of one another, and people still don't know how to use a mask properly. And then they're saying it's the vaccine making numbers go up. It's not. It's people who don't care. Complacency is a very dangerous thing at the moment, and I completely agree with that message. Kate says, could they not have organised concerts, etc., in the Republic as people are travelling over the border 
to attend gigs in the north now. Yeah, I saw that over the weekend, Kate. They had some big concerts in the north. They looked like great gigs as well. But they insisted that everybody going into that concert had to have proof of vaccination, proof of recovery, or proof of a recent antigen test to get in. So... I reckon those events were safe enough. And yes, would I, would I like to see events starting here now where you had to have proof of vaccination, proof of recovery, or proof of, a, of an antigen test? Yes, I would. Yes, I think we could. Hopefully, we should start looking at those coming into the winter. Uh, we need to get those daily numbers down a bit, though. But I would like to see that here. And I have no problem, and you can give out to me all you want. I don't actually care. Uh, if it's a thing that for the next 12 months, to get the music business back, to get entertainment back, to get theatre back, to get the arts back. If it is a thing that we can only have vaccinated entry to indoor events, then I'm okay with that. Sorry now, but I am. 1850-715-996. It's been a horrendous weekend in Afghanistan. And 20 years ago, when all of this started, global news communication, well, it was advanced enough, but it was nothing like as advanced as... It is now. So we can practically see live clips within minutes of what's happening in Kabul and Kandahar and all over Afghanistan as the Taliban have now taken control of the country. Sky's Stuart Ramsey has been watching as they arrived in Kabul. I hear a lot of shouting uh, coming down the road behind me. In fact, it is a I think it's a procession of, uh, of the Taliban. Uh, yes, it is. There's the white flag. And uh, they're coming down uh, the street uh, just next to us. They're in their shawar kameez. They're led by uh, a white flag. Um, and uh, they're chanting uh, as they, as they go, go down. Now, the Irish government is presently uh, a member of the UN Security Council. Remember, they won that seat a couple of years ago. It's a temporary seat. They're not a permanent member. It's a temporary seat, which we hold at the moment on the UN Security Council. And uh, our Foreign Affairs Minister, Simon Coveney, has been speaking about that this morning. You know, there's an emergency meeting of the Security Council today. I think the focus of that emergency meeting will be on emergency management, uh, ensuring that there isn't a mass slaughter of people who have uh, cooperated with uh, with Western powers in recent years. Um, people, you know, I mean, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of Afghan uh, interpreters uh, who would have been working with um, uh, with the US, with the UK, and with other NATO forces there. Um, and of course, um, many of them feel terribly at risk now. Now, Minister Coveney was speaking on the News Talk breakfast show this morning. He was asked about Irish people uh, based in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, there are about 20 Irish citizens uh, and we are uh, in Afghanistan and we're in contact either with them directly or with the organisations that they're working for. Um, so Ireland, as people will know, does not have an embassy, uh, an embassy in, in Afghanistan and we operate from Abu Dhabi. Um, uh, into Afghanistan. And so we've been in contact with with uh, about 23 uh, Irish citizens. Uh, we know that uh, approximately 15 of those are looking to leave. Uh, and some of them would have had um, bookings and we would have helped them get bookings on commercial flights that have now been cancelled. And so we're working with other EU partners, as, as you would expect. You know, most of the talk over the weekend on social media, and I have to say, 
And the Queen Bee wouldn't be a person who talks much about world news. Not much. But yesterday and Saturday, she was quite upset about the women and children. What they're facing in Afghanistan now. And the stuff you can find online and you can read it in the newspapers is horrendous. And listening to some of the correspondence reports over the weekend, I, I listened to one story of a bank. I, I think it was in Kandahar. Maybe wrong. But the Taliban stormed into the bank and all of the female workers in that bank were led out at gunpoint and told to go home and find a male relative to take over their job. They were beaten as they were coming out because they weren't wearing the full body burqa. Women are not allowed to work under the Taliban except in some parts of healthcare. Um, because a woman needing healthcare is not, about, not allowed to be treated by a man in the Taliban world. It's a terrible place for women and children, which raises the question, very much raises the question, should we help? Can we help? Here we are, thousands and thousands of miles away. A small country. What can we do? Well, could we give some of them shelter? That's what Simon Coburn has been talking about this morning. We've already agreed uh, to uh, to 45 individuals um, uh, leaving Afghanistan, and we've already agreed to the visa waivers for those people. Uh, some are trying to get out at the moment. Some are already in uh, in Pakistan, having left on the back of getting a commitment. Uh, and then um, I've agreed with um, uh, Mr. O'Gorman then that that that, that Ireland initially has already agreed to take another 100 to 150 um, and we'll prioritise of course people working with human rights organisations with the media there um, women and girls in particular If you have any thoughts on that I mean should we 45 he says we'll take should we take more I mean it's got to be the most it's going to be the most horrendous place in the world to be a woman or one of them I, maybe that's a sweeping statement I don't know but from what I've been reading at the weekend and seeing and hearing and remembering the stuff from 20 years ago when when this whole battle with the Taliban started and like this has been the greatest failure of foreign, foreign policy in, in, in years like the Americans pulled out the British pulled out and here we are, the Taliban. It's, it's a bit like a virus. You take your head off the neck of a virus and it spreads again. And here we are with this mess now, this horrible, horrible mess in Afghanistan. And there are people that need help. Should we be taking them? Should we be willing to take them? And I'm not talking 45 of them, hundreds of them. Should we give them shelter? And know we're a small little nation, small, tiny little nation, but should we? Because there's a horrible humanitarian disaster brewing in this place in the middle of nowhere that very few of us will ever see or very few of us will ever be in as Simon Coburn says only 23 Irish people live in there should we should we do more to help should we take them in what should we do 1850 715996 can we just talk the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM with McCarthy Insurance Group call in person or call them now they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie you guys ready 
Big Drive Home, weekdays from 4 on Cork's 96FM. Hey, it's Lorraine. Join me weekdays on the Big Drive Home where it's go big and go home. The biggest tunes, the biggest prizes and catching up with the biggest stars too. I was on a bit of a date with a girl, you know. Some lad came up in a van beside us and he just said, like, are you Shane Cotton? And it obviously made me look unbelievable. Like. For all the latest Cork news, entertainment and traffic updates, I'll talk to you weekdays from 4. The Big Drive Home. Let's go business with Ford Lease. Hassle-free vehicle leasing. Search Ford Lease to find out more. The Big Drive Home. On Cork's 96 FM. The ongoing story of Afghanistan is continuing to develop and effectively what's happened out there now is that the Taliban have taken over the country and they are running it again. The president appears to have fled the country and effectively... Afghanistan is now a country in which it is illegal to be a woman. Pretty much, pretty much illegal to be a woman. They can't work except in some areas of healthcare to look after other women. And they'll starve when they can't work. It's dreadful, absolutely dreadful. Women are not allowed to work in Afghanistan unless they work in certain areas of healthcare to treat other women. It's it's appalling, and and it's 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 the kind of stuff that that you, if you read it, if you were to read an account of the role and the life of a woman or a child under Taliban rule, you would say they were making it up. You would say the writer was making it up, and unfortunately, they're not making it up. Carlos says, "I know this is unlikely, but I'd be afraid of us leaving in members of the Taliban disguised as refugees. Though not likely." still very possible. Well, caller, if you limit it to women and children, you kind of avoid that prospect because the Taliban doesn't let women in. It's all men. So there are no women in the Taliban. In the Taliban. Um, okay, maybe some women married to members of the Taliban, but there are no women. So women and children, uh, you can pretty much take it that they're fleeing from this crowd. But Mick says, I don't think we should take them. We need to look after our own homeless first. If we're to survive as an island nation, we need to look after our own affairs first. Mick, there were times when I would agree with you, but looking at the pictures coming out of Kabul and Kandahar and the rest of Afghanistan over the weekend and seeing the prospects of women and children there, I'm sorry, I can't agree with you. I can't agree with you. These are women and children. And effectively, they now live in a country where it is virtually illegal to be a woman. Figure that one out for yourself. They're seen as a lesser species. They literally are seen by the Taliban as a lesser, a lesser species. And and maybe we have a duty to help. 1850-715-996. Our good friend Catherine Hallisey is running a workshop over the next while on uh, how to make sure that your children behave or how to get the best behaviour out of your child. God, we've all struggled with it whether they're 2 or 22. We've all struggled with it. Catherine, good morning to you. Good morning, PJ. And we have, haven't we? We've all struggled. Look, everybody struggles with with this. You know, we all talk about how parenting is the most amazing experience of your life, but also the most difficult. 
Mm. You know, and it's just, for, you know, you've got all of the kind of more extreme reasons, like if somebody has anxiety or different things going on. And then you've just got the ordinary every day getting through the day with your children without losing your cool. Yeah, yeah. Like we'd all, we'd all love to think that if we do the right things every day, that we'll have little angels. Nothing could be further from the truth. No, and I think that, look, the title of the workshop, you know, Raising Well-Behaved Kids, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek because it's taking what we all want as parents and and it's showing you how to get there, but it's not the way you think. It's not with star charts. It's not with timeouts. It's not with coming down hard. It's actually about really understanding what's going on for children and then using that to be your best self as a parent mm. and to enable your child to also be their best self. I had a friend who, who was a mother of seven, uh, Catherine. I remember when, when my two were, God, what are they, seven or eight maybe at most they were. And I remember oh. remarking to my friend one time that they were a pain in the arse <laughs> to be informed that's their job at eight. Oh, so, yeah. so we have to work a certain amount of that into it. But where do we where do we start? Where, where, what's what are the what are the basics? I suppose the basics are really reflecting on what's going on in your home. I think so many things go wrong for us as parents because we're overwhelmed and we're busy, 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 and then we parent as a reaction rather than a thoughtful response. Give me so, the difference between the two: reaction, thoughtful response. What's the difference? <laughs> So, you know the way if you're in sport, right, and you're training, doing your drills so that they become automatic, that when you're in the high pressure match, you're able to use the skills. But in parenting, we have a lot of high pressure situations, but we're not drilling. We're not being coached. We're not thinking things through. So like I have a very easy just three part reflection that I do myself and that I do with all my clients. Okay. It's what's going well and why? What's not going well and why? And what do I need to do differently? Super basic. For anyone listening here now, just have a think about that. And then, you know, you just brain dump everything that's going on. And then you pick one thing to work on. Mm. So I spoke to you last week about getting kids to tidy their rooms. Yeah. But it could be really basic things like, you know, we all, uh, most of us have school coming up. Yes. It's thinking about how to get out in the morning. You know, stress-free school mornings. I actually have a free checklist on that if people want to grab that. But if there is such thing, <laughs> it's a stress-free school morning. <laughs> you know, I'm not pretending that it is. You know, roses and singing every morning. Yeah. But you can well, really dial down the stress. We, we found the chocolate brownies helped. But that wasn't. <laughs> And that's this being really intentional about what you want home life to look like. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not just about being intentional, it's about thinking, okay, now, how do I put things into place to make this happen? And, you know, you've got all these TV shows that show things like star charts and stuff, and they're quite seductive. And if you go into a bookshop and you'll see loads of parenting books that recommend these kinds of things, but they, they may work temporarily. But pretty soon the child will decide that the reward isn't worth it. It's not worth their time. So I am a big into parenting with the long game in mind mm. and not going for these quick fixes that, that look great on telly. Yeah. But don't actually work out great at home. 
Yeah. <clears throat> you wouldn't be a fan of Super Nanny? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of parenting through fear or force. Yeah. So it's no blame, no shame. Because like parenting through fear and force, it's time limited. What happens when your child is bigger than you? Because that comes for most of us, especially as a mom. You know, when you can no longer be bigger. And not only that, it teaches your child to use fear and force to get what they want. Mm. So instead, if you can just step right back and think, what do we all need? Like, you know, what do you need in all of your relationships? Like, we all need a bit of connection. Mm. We all need to feel good. We all need clear expectations. You know, so if you want your kids to have a tidy room, you know, there's no point in roaring at them every Saturday morning to tidy their room. Instead, it's figuring out, okay, what part of the room are they keeping tidy and how can we build on that? What support do they need? Mm. Or if it's the school mornings, you know, what support do they need to get out to school on time? Mm. You know, just, and a lot of it is about getting ahead of it and planning. <laughs> is there an authority line to be taken by parents? Do, 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 should children see you as an authority? Definitely, like every organisation needs a leader. So this isn't about demanding respect. This is about behaving in a way that respect is inevitable and that you are the strong leader of your home. So I talk about being bigger, stronger, wiser, kind. So, you know, lots of us have tried to move away from things like shouting and roaring and, and snacking. And then you can veer into being too permissive, too kind. Mm-hmm. Now, we know from the research that those kids actually don't turn out that well. Mm-hmm. We also know from the research that all the roaring and shouting and snacking, those kids generally don't turn out as well as they could either. So that's where the wiser comes in. When do you follow their lead and when do you take charge? And it's very much about kind of tuning into where are the moments where it doesn't really matter if they're in charge, because an awful lot of the things that we say no to as parents, and like, let's face it, a lot of us have a default no setting. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of things we say no to, if we actually reflected and thoughtfully responded, we'd be like, well, actually, that doesn't really matter to me either way. Go on, do it. Yeah. Yeah. It, we have a saying no. in our house that we can't always be coming from a place of no. And there are times over the years where we've, we've sat down and discussed it, me and the Queen Bee, and said, right, we can't always be coming from a place of no here. Let's yeah. let's see how this can be done. Even though we're uncomfortable with the idea, let's see, can we do it? That is, that's exactly what I mean now about that reflection. Yeah. It's sitting down, so you were recognising that there was a little bit of a default to know, and then thinking, okay, let's lean into this comfort, this discomfort here, and see what it's about. There's a, there's a lot to it. It doesn't come it doesn't come with an instruction book, which is probably the worst bit. So, where can people join your workshop, and when? So I'm running it twice. I'm running it this evening at 7 o'clock and the exact same thing Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. Now, if you're a parent, you might be thinking, well, sure, I can't get my crowd to bed. That's why I need a workshop. Well, if that's you, don't worry because you can get the recording to watch any time you like. Great, great. Is there a charge? It is, yeah. It's €29 and it's raisingwellbehavedkids.com. Okay. So it's got its own website? It's got its own website, or you can just find it on my website, CatherineHallacy.com. Okay. So you can go CatherineHallacy.com, RaisingWellBehavedKids.com. Okay, okay. This evening and tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, plus you'll also make the recording available. 
Monday, Wednesday and the recording then as well. All right. Okay, Catherine, always good to talk to you on the opinion line. That's Catherine Hallisey, Child Psychology. Uh, we, raising well-behaved kids. Com. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Coming up in just a sec, something that's quite common. You might know, you might not know you have it, but you would want to know whether you have it or not. It's called sleep apnea. Talking about it in just a sec. But on... Afghanistan, John says, no mention or any indication of news of COVID in Afghanistan or no mention of the views of Putin or Russia. Are they supporting the Taliban? Well, Putin says that he now recognizes the Taliban as the de facto power in Afghanistan. Uh, The Russian ambassador is meeting with them today to help decide if they can establish diplomatic relations and if not, how they'll deal with things like trade and military issues. So that's that situation. As regards COVID in Afghanistan, it's just been through a fairly devastating third wave. And do you remember way back at the start of all this, I spoke to a young lad in the States called Avi Schiffman about keeping the numbers for the world. He's still doing it. His website is still there and still updated every single day. Just opening, it's called ncov2019.live if you want to find it. But just of this morning, Avi has uh, 7,025 deaths in Afghanistan, which is 176 deaths per million of population. Uh, there's 152,142 confirmed cases. And at the moment, there's about 40,000 active cases in the country and the number of tests carried out there's the problem the number of tests carried out is only 744,000 so their level of testing there is really really low so it's almost impossible to know just how many people have or had or have died of or are still sick with uh, COVID in Afghanistan but they've just had a fairly awful third wave of it and bear in mind as well the difficulties with people getting treated in hospital and all that in Afghanistan. It's its a mess. So I hope that answers your question, John. The data on COVID-19 in Afghanistan. Not helping their situation. 1850-715-996. Would you know what sleep apnea is? Do you know anybody who has it? Could you possibly have it yourself? I suppose what is it is the best question to start with because it's relatively common at least that's what we think Uh, let's talk to someone who knows Professor Ken O'Halloran from UCC is a professor of physiology there and does special research in the control of breathing Uh, Ken good morning to you good morning PJ How, how common is this? it's very common very very common condition in fact there was a publication earlier this year an international consortium that estimated nearly a billion people may have disrupted breathing during sleep. 
Now that captures a whole spectrum of disorders and many of those will have mild breathing disruptions, but it's a staggering number of people. And as you say, many, many people who have sleep apnea don't know that they have sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. Underdiagnosed, underrecognized, and then we see over many years, many decades, of course, the consequences of that down the line. And in simple terms, what is it? Well, when we sleep, all of us, when we sleep, the muscles of our throat will become relaxed. Many of our muscles do. And for most of us, that's not a problem. But in some individuals, the airway will narrow, and it will narrow to the point that breathing will now become uh, quite noisy, and that's what gives rise to snoring. Turbulent flow through the airway that most of us recognize. Snoring may not be benign, but snoring is not sleep apnea. Mm. Snoring is probably a prelude to sleep apnea. In sleep apnea, it comes from the Greek language. It means without breath. And so now we have a big problem. The airway is completely closed during sleep for periods. There's no flow of air. And so it's actually silent. And we may recognize it in individuals who snore. They often have periods between bouts of snoring that are completely silent. Yeah. And it could be that breathing has resumed, and that would be a good thing. But, of course, it's a problem if breathing has become obstructed and there's no flow. So now what we have... Would you not wake up if that happens? Yeah, so that's the problem, of course. You actually have uh, an arousal from sleep. It might be from a deep stage of sleep to a lighter stage of sleep, so an unawareness of it. Or even people who would sit up, bolt upright, wake up, but then fall back asleep again. So the waking up is good because it restores the airway Mm. and you breathe. But now what we have is that sleep apnea, a breathing disorder, ends up actually becoming a sleep disorder. It Mm. ends up disrupting sleep. And that's probably the first sign, people who have really excessive sleepiness during the daytime. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think possibly more men, maybe I'm wrong here, but possibly more men are inclined to snore kind of by default. Yeah, you're quite correct. It's much more common in men. But actually, that's only true if we look uh, up until about the menopause period in women. So around the perimenopausal period, those numbers uh, are equivalent. And now it's actually a big problem for women. The the, the incidence is as high uh, in women as men. But Mm. the cardiovascular consequences, one of the problems with sleep apnea is it can cause high blood pressure. Okay. And it can therefore cause heart failure in the long term. And the risk of cardiovascular events in women actually now becomes higher than in men. So how would I know if a loved one's snoring or how would they know if my snoring was something to be looked into? Yeah, good question. Often that's where it's first reported. It's the bed partner. The individual themselves is sort of uh, really unaware of the condition. Although if you look, if you look at the daytime behaviors, there's many cardinal signs that kind of give it away. If you witness an individual snoring and then periods, as I said, of complete quiescence, silence, but if you watch them, they're actually breathing really vigorously. They're making the effort to breathe, but because the airway is collapsed, they're not actually effectively breathing. It can be tricky to determine that's actually what the sleep specialist will do is instrument the individual and definitively determine that. But often it's something that will be witnessed. A bed partner will say, that's exactly what happens. I've seen that happen. And then the individual rouse either a body posture change or the return of the snoring Mm. uh, and the clearance of the airway, but only for that cycle then to continue again. It's something that happens hundreds of times over the course of the night. One assumes that it's dangerous if left untreated. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So we know a rather sobering fact that untreated severe sleep apnea will shorten life expectancy. It's pretty much determined now that it's causal for cardiovascular disease, causal for hypertension. 
and we know that hypertension, whatever the cause of hypertension, is going to lead to heart failure. But a host of other things, one of the problems with sleep disruption, just sleep disruption by any cause, is that it impacts our whole physiology. It's going to impact on our mood, our cognition, our metabolism, and pretty much sleep apnea starts to affect every organ of the body. And so that's why it's really quite Mm. devastating, really quite a pernicious Mm. silent killer, you might say. Can, Can we sort it out at home, as it were? Well, yes and no. Um, certain uh, lifestyle factors are influential. So we know smoking is a risk factor. We know consumption of alcohol is a risk factor. It tends to depress the nerves that innervate the airway. And so some of us who don't snore ordinarily might, after a glass of wine or two at night, snore that evening, and that would be witnessed. So certain lifestyle changes are possible, but really because this is a change that occurs in the anatomy of the airway or the physiology of the individual. It really does need specialist intervention. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, at what point would you know I need to see a doctor here? Well, if there's any concern, um, you should. You should uh, discuss it with your GP. There are some questionnaires that will ca- characterize sleep quality. Very simple questionnaires that capture your behavior, whether you doze frequently when trying to... Um, perform tasks when you're concentrating, watching TV, for example, working on a computer screen. People are often witnessed falling asleep and and actually unaware because they rouse, think they've nodded off for a couple of seconds. It could be for several minutes. So a lot of it actually looks at the quality of sleep. There are risks, of course, when people are very, very sleepy, driving a car, working Mm. with heavy machinery. Mm. We know that that's a problem, actually, that sleep apnea can underlie a lot of uh, problems on in-road traffic accidents, for example. Right. Like, you know, we all get a bit, I mean, I open the morning at a quarter to six and it's kind of a given that by four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm a bit tired and I might need a nap. But that's, yeah. that's normal, isn't it? Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. Um, there's a difference between feeling the urge to sleep, which grows as the day goes on. And if we've had a disrupted night before, it's going to be a greater pressure for us to sleep. And we have an awareness of that. And all of us have sat down for a second or two and then decided, okay, now's the time to close the eyes yeah. and nap. This is really quite an intrusive form of sleepiness. Because really, you can't control this. You can't control it. And more than that, it, it affects people's mood, their ability to concentrate. People can be quite irritable. Right. Really all the signs that you'd see with sleep disruption. Some people end up, do they, Ken, using a machine? That's it, yeah. yeah. It's known as CPAP. It's an acronym, C-P-A-P, Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. That's probably the first line of treatment for people with diagnosed sleep apnea. And what it is, it's a mask that you wear when you go to sleep. It pushes a a front of air into the pharynx, not all the way into the lungs. You're not being ventilated. Mm. But it's a mechanical splint to help you to open your airway. When it works, it works incredibly well. And and for some people, it's a remarkable change very, very quickly. Doesn't sound very comfortable to try to sleep with. No, that's the problem, actually. The adherence is very low. And we now know from studies that you need to probably have it on for six to eight hours, effectively throughout the whole night. So that's going to prove difficult if you wake during the night, maybe go to the loo, come back, people don't put the machine back on. Even if you turn turn over. Yeah, just displace it uh, unawares, yeah. There are other devices, some people, it's the anatomy of their airway, so they have short uh, lower jaws, and so linking in with the dentist, you can get a device that you wear at night that pushes your jaw forward, pulls that front part of your airway forward. Mm -hmm. And again, for some people, 
that works remarkably well and is reasonably straightforward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do people ever have to have a surgical intervention or is there such a thing? Yeah, surgery was common maybe a good few years back. It's now tends to be sort of contraindicated. It can cause more trauma. Surgery is common in children and, and in fact, sleep apnea is common in children. Is although it? age is a risk factor for it. We tend to think of older and obese individuals, especially men, as you say. Quite common in children, but there it tends to be because the airway can become crowded. So often surgery is good there to take out the tonsillar tissue. Mm. That may actually be addressed because they're having a lot of repeat infections. Yeah but can often actually uh, alleviate sleep apnea that they may not even know they've had. I think the most surprising element of the conversation, Ken, is the number of women that can have it. And you say particularly pre-menopause. Post-menopause. Post-menopause. Yeah, so once the hormones change around that period, uh, what we see is effects on breathing and effects then that uh, provide less cardiovascular protection. Estrogen, the major female hormone, is really quite protective for the cardiovascular system throughout life. But the mm. sudden loss of estrogen puts females at risk and then sleep apnea seems to present with about the same incidence as in men. In other words, very, very common. Oh. And they're now at quite a high risk. Lastly, what I would think this is, or for whom I would think this is particularly problematic, is those who don't live with anybody to tell them you are snoring too much or I don't like the sound of that. People who live alone, for example, mm-hmm. uh, who don't know they've got a problem. Yeah, how, how, I mean, their body will alert them to it, I expect. Yeah, so I guess it's back to the first point we had about the, how, how sleepy they are, if they feel their mood, if they feel that. And there might be other telltale signs, in fact, even going to their GP. They may have high blood pressure, they may have issues with um, diabetes or pre-diabetes. We know that sleep apnea can be a driving force for many of these things. Mm-hmm. So it actually needs to be on the table when you're considering even other conditions. Uh, a colleague suggested to me recently that a lot of the um, smartwatches and Fitbits that people can wear now that look at, at least crudely, the quality of sleep can be quite useful. Yeah. yeah. Lastly, uh, cardiovascular exercise in short bursts during the day, like half an hour on an exercise bike or a run around the block, can that help? Well, it helps general health, of course. Yeah. Probably the first thing that's recommended. Weight loss is often recommended for individuals with sleep apnea if obesity is the driving fo- uh, force. It's not always a straightforward thing. Um, actually, speaking of exercise, there was many years ago attempts to look at training the muscles of the throat. And it was deemed maybe a moot point because, of course, those muscles become relaxed. But that's now back in vogue again. People are linking in specialists in this field with speech and language therapists. And it seems for some people, training these muscles with different maneuvers actually leads to an improvement in their outcome. It might depend on the type of sleep apnea that they have and whether Mm. strengthening these muscles provides them some some protection, prevents that airway from fully closing, for example. So lastly, I suppose, just to sum up, Professor, if a loved one or if yourself having trouble staying awake, if you snore a lot at night, you're having trouble staying awake by day and not not the fact that you need a nap, but the fact that you're falling asleep at your desk or anything. Get it checked. Get it checked. Yeah, straight to your GP. Get it checked. All right. Okay. Thanks for being with us today. Much appreciated. That's Professor Ken O'Halloran, Professor of Physiology at UCC, studying in particular the control of breathing in health and disease. Sleep apnea, far more common than you think. Uh, allegedly, I snore. I say that with my tongue very much in my cheek because I know I do. But allegedly, allegedly I snore and I'm constantly getting given out to about it. But I sleep like a top as well. 
So I don't think we'll worry too much about sleep, sleep apnea in my case, but it's worth being aware of. 185715996. Getting back to uh, Catherine and her uh, parenting workshop, which is on tonight. Phil says, we were told instead of always catching children doing something wrong, you should catch them doing something right and point it out. And it made a huge difference. Burr says, uh, my motto is you do anything wrong, you'll end up in a wheelchair for six months after I break your legs. You have enough time to think about what's right and what's wrong then. I'll never do it, but the threat is powerful. Oh, Bear. Oh, I can't see Catherine been too happy with that. 1857-15996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. It's time to vote. It's time to vote. In the Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. Go to 96fm.ie. Check out the shortlists for all categories and vote for your favorite. The best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths, and more with a 12 month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. Only on Cork's 96FM. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 996. On Cork's 96FM. Over the past 12 months, um, my daughter and her friends have gotten into Formula One motor racing. They're eating, drinking, and sleeping Formula One motor racing. <laughs> and it all happened because of a series on Netflix, which I haven't looked at yet. But they say it's the biggest thing and it's the most incredible thing to watch called Drive to Survive. And it has drawn a whole lot of interest in motorsport. And a lot of new fans have been drawn to motorsport and to Formula One from watching this Drive to Survive. Like I said, I watched about half an episode or a trailer one night and I'm saying, okay, we might have a look at that sometime. But right here locally... We've got someone entering what they call formula. It, it's Sarah Sarah McKenzie. What is it exactly? What's it called? It's it's called the Formula Women Racing Series. What's that? Good morning. Hi. Yeah. So it's it's called Formula Woman, like you said, and essentially what it is is an opportunity for women who have either little to no racing experience but are just really passionate about, you know, either motorsport generally or kind of amateur driving to actually get behind the wheel of a race car, essentially. So mm. it first it first ran um, back in the early 2000s and there were actually over 10,000 applicants at the time and it kind of disappeared for a long time and it's now back again like you said there's a huge kind of uptake of interest in motorsport particularly since Drive to Survive I think it's kind of made it a bit more accessible to people mm. um, you know for years like I've been watching Formula 1 since I was 10 and people always said oh don't they just go round and around in a circle <laughs> which um, you know, it's obviously a lot more complicated and exciting than that. So yeah. it's actually really nice to, to see people getting into it. Yeah, I had some involvement at a very distant level for a few years with the Cork 20 rally. And what fascinated me was the number of women involved in motorsport at all mm. levels. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, this is the thing. So the the other part about Formula Woman is that, you know, obviously not everyone is going to win 
the competition, but there's a really kind of strong emphasis on creating community and, you know, encouraging people to emphasize their strengths outside of just driving. So whether it's, you know, doing social media or whatever the case may be, um, there's kind of more than just the driving opportunity as part of it, which is great as well. Mm. So, so who gave you your first interest? Your mum, was it? Yeah, so my mum used to go up to Mondello and watch races um, and she kind of, she got me into Formula One, as I said, when I was about 10 and I was just immediately hooked. Just like the noise, the colour of all the cars, the speed, it was all just kind of super exciting and yeah, I've just been basically hooked on it ever since and my, my dad then actually taught me to drive and I I couldn't get enough like straight away when I was sixteen I was in for my my learner's permit and um, mm. you know the the full license straight away after that so yeah I just I just love driving yeah there's a big difference between the Toyota Yaris though and a race car so how do you there make is. that how do you make that transition yeah so um, there's kind of there's a couple of support mechanisms for us like I say it's not just kind of you know, you apply with no experience and then all of a sudden you're out on this racetrack and you kind of don't know what to do. So there's a whole online course, actually, that's been provided by the Formula Woman organisers, which literally te- teaches you kind of every element of driving a car quickly around the track, everything from, you know, how to spot the apex of the corner to, like, understeer, oversteer, things like that. So there is preparation involved. And then the next stage of the process is actually an on-track assessment. So I'm going for mine on the 20th of September in Wales. Right. So, um, yeah, we'll be actually driving. We won't be driving Formula 1 cars, obviously, uh, on that day, but um, we'll be driving um, a Vauxhall Corsa E, which is actually entirely electric, which is really cool as well. Wow. So, yeah, so it's it's really great. They're kind of, you know, obviously it's quite unique already given that it's a competition solely for women in motorsport, and then they're kind of adding in the electric element as well, which is really cool. Yeah. So, so you do that you do that assessment in Wales and then if you come through that, what's the what's the next step? Yeah, so essentially the assessments are gonna run from about September to November. This is a very much an international thing. So I'll be going to Wales but there's also a day in Bedford in England, there's one in Scotland, there's one in India as well. Um and as far as the US. So after that then sixteen Competitors get chosen for a kind of final shootout, essentially. Um, When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Kind of be brought back and tested again. And then there is another smaller group chosen after that who will actually get kind of full training, essentially, right. as if you were to be a driver. And um, will you get to drive a race? 
Um, so the it depends on how far you get. For the on-track assessment, it'll be more individually assessing how you are on the track. There will be a karting element as well that will probably be more race-based. Um, and then, yeah, if you win, you actually get a seat in what's called the GT Cup Series, mm. which is um, a racing series over in the UK. And if anyone has seen um, the article in the Echo or looked at the Formula Woman website and seen the amazing McLaren uh, car that's pictured on there, yeah. that's what you would actually be driving, which is awesome. <laughs> it's, I'd say you lay awake dreaming about it, do you? Oh my gosh, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. I, even when they announced it, I just couldn't believe it, it's fab. <laughs> all right, well, listen, good luck, good luck with it. Keep in touch with us, all right? Yeah, absolutely, thanks so much. Cheers, Sarah. That's Sarah McKenzie from Cork heading off, hopefully to get into the Formula Women experience. Actually, I mentioned Netflix and that Drive to Survive show. There's two things on Netflix at the moment that worth pointing out to you. One is Virgin River, which is a kind of a daft little semi-soap opera, semi-drama set in the most beautiful part of the country in the USA. That's And it's into its uh, third or fourth series. Not bad. And then Borgen. Now, Borgen, if you liked House of Cards and The West Wing, and all of those, if you like those political dramas, Borgen is just bananas. Borgen is Danish, and when it turned up years ago on BBC with subtitles, it was just too much work for me. I I hate subtitles, generally. I'm not a, not a subtitle fan at all. What they've done now, and Netflix have done a lot of this, they're, they've taken and they've dubbed it over in English. No, it's set in the Danish Parliament, and some of them have Cockney accents and Yorkshire accents. But it's great. It's and Borgen is just bananas. If you like your political intrigue, and and your political messing about, it make it's it's, a, it's as good a series I've seen as the first ever House of Cards, and that'll tell you. Well worth it. It's on Netflix now. Borgen eighteen fifty seven one five nine nine six. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. The Everyman is bringing a new season of theatre to Cork audiences with on-demand stream shows, including the acclaimed musical based on James Joyce's best love short story, The Day and opera. It runs on August 22nd. Access all areas. Magic Nights by the Lee is a new series of live outdoor music and entertainment events set to take place in Cork City Parks from August 20th to September 4th. There's seven free live shows including Frank and Walters, John Spillane, Lorraine Nash and Jack O'Rourke. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show, play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us here at aaa at 96fm.org Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on Side. On Cork's 96FM. We're bringing all your favourite festival stars to your back garden. Cork's 96FM's Back Garden Festival is now streaming exclusively online. Listen on our app or go to 96FM.ie. The Back Garden Festival with Harvey Norman and JBL. Your specialist in sound this summer. Cork's 96FM. Just looking at some stuff to do with Afghanistan and the whole history of the last 12 months. There's a certain amount of thought and it's it's worthwhile to... This actually all started in February of 2020. 
um, when Mike Pompeo gave in to the Taliban and agreed to end sanctions and released prisoners and all that. It's been snowballing ever since. And the Taliban, they, they didn't do this in a weekend. They didn't do this in a week. They didn't do this in a fortnight. They have been quietly paying off local officials up and down Afghanistan for the last 12 months to allow them to do this when the moment came. And sure, the moment has come now uh, and we and we know where it's going. But we'll do more on this uh, during the week. Um, but it's, it's, it's the most horrific developing international story that's with us at the moment. On a brighter note, have you ever thought of growing your own herbs to season your food? I don't wish to trivialise Afghanistan. I'm not. Uh, we will focus on it in more detail, I promise you. But there's much more going on and nice positive stuff. Let's take one. Let's take something. Growing your own herb garden. You can do this if you've got a massive garden or you can do this if all you have is a sill and a window box. Because as I've discovered, because the Queen Bee started growing her own in the last couple of years, herbs grow quite easily in in the average garden. But not enough of us are doing it. Uh, Trevor Martin is from Waterfall Farm. Trevor, good morning to you. PJ, good morning. How are you? Good. It is true, isn't it? Most of the common herbs that we put in our dinner or put in anything else, they grow quite easily in our climate. They do. They do. They're um, they're all around a fairly easy, fairly successful thing to grow in almost any condition in your garden or in your windowsill or front of your garage. They're fairly hardy and, and fairly easy to grow. Mm. If, is, if the, the basis is in setting them well, isn't it? As in getting getting them established well and then you can put them out. That's right. I suppose that the funny thing to actually with, with herbs is they grow in almost any kind of soil. They don't necessarily need the very best of manure and very best of conditions to grow successfully. In fact, you can a, 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 almost take away from their goodness by putting them in too rich a, a content. Mm. Yeah. What what the missus does in our garden is she has she's mad for her flowers and her colour and her plants, but she's got the the herbs in little pots in between them, so so you get a fantastic spray of spray of of, of fragrance as you're going down the garden. But they, they seem to grow really easily. So what are the basics? How can you get started? I suppose you you can decide to be brave and grow it from seed, um, and go into your garden centre and buy a pack of seed. And if you have a small garden or a big garden, it doesn't really matter. You can use a window box or a pot or plant them straight into the ground. Um, if you want to propagate them from seed, then they're best kept indoor, maybe a sunny windowsill for a few weeks till they get established. Yeah. Or you can buy them in plugs where they're, all, where they're already started in a garden centre. Mm. I suppose choosing a sunny spot is, is the key element. They do like a bit of sun. Yeah. They don't need to be overwatered. Uh, you can actually do damage by overwatering them. Um, and as you say, the the flower, the flowers, the smell, the, the benefit of cooking, the benefit of the taste, they're, they're, they're good in every sense. There's nothing like lamb with your own garden-grown mint. Absolutely. You're making me hungry now. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> and true. Mint, mint is an interesting one. There's loads of different types of mint. Yes. Um, from chocolate mint to your regular spearmint. But mint can be dangerous if you plant it directly into the ground. It will just take over. Will it? Absolutely take over. Uh, mint is best off in a pot or a, or a, a window box of some sort. It can 
just keep appearing all over the place if you plant it directly into the ground. Yeah, if, if it gets to like the ground at all, it'll go to mint it on you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and the other ones then, parsley and thyme and rosemary. Yeah, the old, the old favourites, I suppose. Um, curly parsley, fat parsley, always popular. Um, very hardy. You can keep cutting. They'll come again, they'll come again, they'll come again. You may need to cover them during the winter if you get very very heavy frost, very cold weather. Mm. Uh, rosemary and thyme, the same. Um, they'll produce a lovely flower, but you can keep cutting them back so they don't get too woody and too leggy. Yeah. Um, and again, if they need to be covered, just something like a horticultural fleece, which again you'd buy in a garden centre, mm. um, that'll keep them protected when we do get the bad frost during the winter. And you don't need a whole pile of space. That's the key element here. Definitely not. Uh, I mean, look, if you're in a small city garden or a big country garden, it doesn't really matter. A small patio, a balcony, a couple of pots, a couple of hanging baskets, and you'll you'll produce lovely herbs in mm. a very small area and very cheaply. Yeah, and what we shouldn't forget is, well, not only do they smell nice and they add lovely to a dish, they're very nutritious. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, we'd see a huge increase in the amount of people wanting to both grow and buy herbs for that very purpose. And I suppose people are getting a bit more adventurous in what they can put into their, their, their dishes at home, especially since lockdown. So they, they've increased in popularity. Mm. Question for you. Uh, what is Oxalis triangularis? Is it a herb? Can you put it into your food? Um, that's a very fancy name. Uh, as far as I know, it's a herb. It's a purple one. Purple one, yes. Yeah. As far as I know, it's a herb. And yes, you can eat it as far as I know. Right, right. It's not one of the not one not, of the not better known we ones. We come across too often, though. Yeah, yeah. So, so the best thing is, and is what time of the year is best to start? Or can you start any time? Um, you can start pretty much any time. I mean, we, we'll be doing some more sowings now, um, August September time, indoor. We've a warm bench in our polytunnels just to bring them on and get them established. I suppose the seasons have changed so much. You could plant out pretty much any time, and you'd be fairly successful most of the time with it. Right, right. Do you know what's interesting? I said so. I read somewhere. It's just true that fennel. If you can grow fennel, uh, it keeps the cats and dogs fleas down. I ha- I hadn't heard that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> apparently, it's a natural deterrent. And of course, the cats and the dogs being among the plants, they don't, apparently fleas don't like fennel. Oh, I, I hadn't come across that. There you are now. There's one Every day is a school day. <laughs> <laughs> Fleas don't like fennel. Listen, great talking to you, Trevor. Likewise. Uh, Thank cheers. you very much indeed. Trevor Martin of, of Waterfall Farm. You can grow all these things relatively easily with a window box or a huge garden. You can grow rosemary or thyme or parsley or sage or basil or fennel or mint. But that's an interesting one. It's about mint. Don't put mint directly into the ground. It'll go wild on you. Keep it in a pot or a box. 185715. 996. Could we give, oh, a best of luck here to cellist Sinead O'Halloran. She's making her chamber music debut on the BBC Proms, if you don't mind, with the Mammon or the Marmon Quartet today. Great to celebrate our Cork artists in all their fields when they have good news to share. After today's performance, she's off to France for the start of a run of European concerts. Bravo. Sinead O'Halloran. Cellist making her chamber on the BBC Proms, if you don't mind. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie.
96 FM. So are you happy now, Ross? The heat and the sunshine is gone and the rain that you love so much is back. So I was standing out in the rain yesterday. Kissing in the rain. Looking up at the heavens. Oh my God, I've no idea how good this is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a bit just went to my eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> we call you Rain Man then. Rain, yeah, rain. rain Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tom Cruise You're Rain Man <laughs> hey, listen. You're more like Tom Cruise liner <laughs> Casey and Ross in the morning With no DC cars Blackpool For Skoda in the city A long-standing tradition in Cork Open 24-7 at milldc.com Cork's 96 FM As well as the back to school In the next couple of weeks The back to third level is coming up as well. And new survey by the League of Credit Unions tells us that three quarters of students are working to try to cope with the cost. Two thirds will struggle financially and over half are skipping lectures in favour of work to try to raise money for themselves to put themselves through college. This was a national survey on third-level costs, which was carried out by the Irish League of Credit Unions. Now, in my time in college, you'd be tight for a couple of quid as well, and people often worked a few hours here and a few hours there just to make a bit. But it's mostly pocket money we were making back then. But now they're literally either living on pot pot noodle or they're ducking out of lectures to try to make some money to keep themselves going. Kieran Quinn is Business Development and Marketing Officer for the All Credit Union, but representing the Irish League here today. Kieran, good morning to you. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Thanks good. On. Delighted. This is a quite disturbing survey. Um, it is, really. It, it's quite um, alarming. I suppose, you know, Irish education is getting more and more expensive, you know, whether it's back to school, as you say, or back to college. So, um, anecdotally, it would cost approximately about €10,000 per year to send a child to third-level education. Now, that's, you know, that depends on if it's they're living in student residential or, you know, if they're coming from home or, you know, there's different things. Mm. But on average, they say it's about €10,000, which is, which is a lot of money. And you that's know? without them so, having a penny in their pocket. Absolutely, yeah. That's, that's literally accommodation, um, uh, you know, obviously fees, you know, living, that kind of thing. So it's it's the whole, you know, and if it's a four-year degree plus a master's, you know, it gets even more expensive. So that's why I suppose we in the credit union offer special um, education loan rates um, to help. It's really the parents. Well, it's the students and the parents, let's face it, that have to cough up the, <laughs> the finances for it. So, yeah, so we're trying to encourage people um, to, to t- kind of break down that cost because it's a lot of money, you know, financially, particularly if you have two children in university. Yeah. Um, and if they're going away to Dublin or, you know, to UL and that, you know, if, if they're living at home in Cork and going to CIT or UCC, it's fine. It's not as expensive, but particularly further afield, it's, uh, the, the finances rack up, you know. Mm. And no matter how well you try to plan for it, it's always going to be incredibly expensive but, but, but it is it's terribly expensive but even again I heard a friend of mine as uh, son is going to um, residence or as a student res in UCC in UCD in Dublin and they've upped the fees by a thousand euros even though you know there's no explanation you know they don't even know if they're going last year it was completely online so you know the child was basically in residence on UCD not doing anything because of no lectures or anything so it's it is becoming more and more expensive which is um 
you know, you know, it, as, as parents, you really need to either start saving, uh, preferably with your local credit union, <laughs> or else, um, you know, take out the education loans. Um, mm. And even actually, what's interesting, even if if you have savings with us in the credit union, you can take out secured loans. So that's even even lower interest rate. And um, so you just take out your loan against the savings, so you get the lowest rate um, possible. Yeah. So it's just to help. And the other thing, big thing, is that everybody um, should um, contact their local credit union because we all do student bursaries. Right. So where we we would give um, a third level, uh, sorry, a degree course a thousand euros um, every year for each year of the of the um, the course, and then for a PLC, so in College of Commerce, or Nefa, it's five hundred euros. So that that's a good chunk off the old fees that they're paying as well. You know, so every credit union does it. You know, so it's just a matter of asking um, your local credit union, and they'll you just apply for it, and then it's you know you're the lucky winner. But it's just you know it's it's it, 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 the the research is quite um, alarming and to think that like over half the students have to work part time and then when they're skipping um, college which defeats the purpose of them being there you know it, it just anyway it's it's what it is but so, yeah so we as I say we in the credit unions will always help as much as we can um, financially and like you know say a lot of parents would come in and get you know a, a loan for this year and they might pay it off early so we don't have any um, penalty fees or anything like that so you could clear your loan during the year and then you start again next September for year two in college and then roll on that way you know Um, so yeah How does one go about securing the finance from a credit union I mean do do you have to have money in Absolutely not no, that's a complete uh, myth, I think. Uh, but still, it comes around. You do have to be a member of the credit union. So basically, you either live in the area or you work in the area um, or you have some sort of association with the area. So uh, my area is 20 kilometres around you all. So there's loads of ones around the city and everything. So you just apply, become a member. And then basically, it's how you get the loan is proving that you can pay it back, let's be honest. Um, so, um, you know, if it's, if it's kids for, you know, student accommodations or students uh, going to college, um, you know, the parents are normally guarantor. And it's just a matter of financing the loan. Um, now, we will, of course, help everybody as much as we can. You know, if, if say, the, you know, the, the, the student isn't working or there's something going wrong, we will always help everybody as much as we can. Um, and then, yeah, and then it's just, you, can, you don't have to have... You you know, matching savings against the loan. That's all, I don't know where that came. Maybe years and years and years ago. Mm. But, well, there um, used to be a thing that if you were going to get, I've been a member of my own credit union since I practically didn't spend confirmation money. But, like but, but, but you, you had to have a certain amount in to get a certain amount out. Are those days no. gone? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's only, It basically is based on your um, proof that you can pay it back. So it's based on your income, your salary, and the savings that you have. Uh, yeah, like definitely, if you have savings in there, you can go for a, a cheaper rate. So if you want, say, a ten thousand euro loan for your first year of college, and you already have ten thousand, or your parents have ten thousand in the credit union, you'll get a lowest rate, which is with us, it's five point seven five. Um, so whereas a normal education loan, loan is six point seven five, but it's just like it depends. If you, if you can pre- if you have the means to pay back the loan, you can have you know as much as you want uh, as as you're asked for. But you have to. It's all based on your proof that you can pay it back, mm. basically. You know. So if someone's so, going to college next month or month yep. after, and uh, mm. make the inquiry now, how quickly can people get approval? It's it's pretty fast. I mean, we we do it within twenty four hours. 
Um, but you see, again, it depends on the kids. It's, 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 it's a bit like the bursary as well. With bursaries as well, you have to prove where you're going to. So I need, you know, a, a confirmation that you're going to the UCC. So that all will happen in next. The leaving cert results are out on the third, gotcha. uh, the week after next. So and then the CEO on in. the fourth or fifth, and exactly. And then so if you have a solid, if you have a solid offer and acceptance of a place up to the credit union absolutely and, and get your um, inquire about your loan and and also do the bursary anyway everybody should do a bursary I never knew about them before but like you should always uh, every credit union does them so again you're getting something you might win the bursary and you get you know a, a discount on your fees you get um, paid you know um, cash basically against your fees which is good but definitely up to the credit union and find out you know you need to know where you're going first because you have to see how much the fees are the college fees and that kind of thing but um, yeah yeah, it's, it's, it's all there for them. Okay. All right. Well, we encourage people to get in contact with their local credit union to guard to a third level cost. Thank you very much. That's Kieran Quinn. He's Business Development and Marketing Officer with Yall Credit Union and speaking on behalf of the Irish League Credit Unions who have found that 55% of people are skipping lectures in order to make some money. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. It's predictable you always get one of these comments when you discuss students and third level and the cost of going to third level and all of that. Students can't be short of money. So they're plenty money for drinking. And plenty money for having house parties. They're not all at it. Some of them are. Some of them have plenty money. But an awful lot of them haven't got a bob to their name. But your 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 comment is appreciated. 1850-715-996. Speaking of the costs of school and the costs of third level, um, thankfully third level seems to be done in my house as well it's great <laughs> but I do remember when they were going to school primary and secondary and funny this came up I was out Saturday afternoon I went out for a haircut and as you do chatting away to the woman cutting me hair and she was chatting with a colleague and the subject being discussed was the cost of back to school and uh, her young lad had just started in secondary and she was talking about the amount of money that she was laying out and she said he hasn't even opened a book yet and she'd have to spend nearly 800 quid and I piped in then I said yeah I said I remember those days I said we used to dread August August if you have kids going to school August is the most expensive month of the year. August and August and Christmas would be the most expensive times of the year when you have kids. But if you've got kids of school going age, August. <laughs> there are Augusts that you wonder how you ever got to the end of it. Because they have to get the uniforms, they have to get the books, and they have to get the sack, and they have to get the shoes, and the fees have to be paid, and all that. So you literally live most of August in a cold sweat to try to get them ready to get them back to school but on the, on the bright don't you you generally do manage to get them back there I don't miss it at all 
I have incredible sympathy for anyone still going through it. Lindsay Woods from the Irish Examiner. Lindsay, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. How are you? Good. As I said, I mean, are yours in school or gone out of it now? Oh, I'm literally in the trenches. I'm actually just wiping that cold sweat there that you were speaking about God from my forehead. How, how old are I they? I know. Uh, one is 11 and one is 10. Oh, so we're woman. Yeah, we're like in that mid-between where I just realised that my eldest has the same size, uh, shoe size as myself this morning. And here was I trying to wedge him into last year's school shoes because they were barely worn. And his toes were curled back. And I was like, oh, crap. I'm going to have to go and buy these school shoes now. So I, I feel I feel parents' pain as regards the expense, etc. Yeah. And for some reason, August... It all happens in August. Like, none of us learned, even though despite the many, many years, uh, we, we, ne- we never learned to start buying stuff in March or April or May. It was always August. Yeah, and being honest, I think things are definitely improving and there are ways and means around it. But, um, you know, I would be very much a lastminute.com person anyway, even though I'll be thinking about it for the whole summer but then I won't do anything about it until maybe the last two or three weeks before they're due to go back. But um, no, it is an awful expense. um, But I do think there are measures you can do to counteract it. And I know it won't be for everyone. Um, I think given, I mean, who would have said we would be where we are, you know, at this stage two years ago in the middle of a pandemic and preparing kids to go back to school again. So I do think there have been positives arise out of preparing kids to go back to school as regards facilitating expense and you know there's been a bit more leeway I find with schools now which is good Um, you know for ourselves even um, the book list I think that's the dreaded thing coming out for a lot of parents Mm. particularly if you have multiple kids in school I mean it's all well and good to say oh you're putting one through but when you get into two and three of them it's a lot of money to be paying out Mm. Um, And and is it still the case, Lindsay, that, and I know yours are not in secondary yet, but that the the book, the the book that was grand in, say, fourth and fifth class, Mm -hmm. you can't pass it down to the kid who's now in third class because they've taken that book off and put another one. That would have been the case. I mean, I remember that being the case when I was in school. Do you know what I mean? Because what would happen was, uh, let's say certain publishers would maybe add in maybe two or three sentences to an edition and render the previous year's one null and void, which was just ludicrous. But I suppose from our school and the school my kids are in, um, what's great about it now is that there are like everyone available, which is called a book scheme, and that you pay a, a, contrib- a contributory fee at the beginning of the year, and the bulk of their books are covered. So therefore, the only thing you're buying is essentially stationery. And I think a lot of schools have now started to um, adopt that, particularly out of the back, I feel, of the, the period of time we spent with remote learning. Mm-hmm. There's more an, emph- an emphasis on, you know, uh, the availability of tech and what can we do to introduce that as a just-in-case measure, but it really has gone a long way to alleviate the cost of books. I find as well as they get older, it lessens. Like, my uh, eldest is going to sixth class and I literally had to purchase one book. It's a workbook this year. Everything else is covered by the book scheme and then it's just stationary. Um, you know, and I think it's just a fantastic facility um, to have in schools and I wish more would adopt it. I don't know whether it's a case because we're in a small school, it's easier to manage. I don't know 
what it would be like in a school of maybe seven, eight hundred kids. I mm-hmm. don't know how that would pan out logistically. Um, but certainly it does take an awful lot of pressure off. Mm. Um, the uniform situation as well, yeah. that the fact that you can only get the jumper in one shop. Yes. I mean, are they getting any easier? Um, on, for, can you go to Marks and Spencer's or Aldi's or Dunn's and, and, and buy a generic shirt or are they still keeping this nonsense of only buying it in one place? No, absolutely. Um, the only item, crested item, which I have to purchase is the school uniform jumper. So everything else is generic. I buy. Um, I bought their entire lot, basically, in Dunn's this year. Um, now, that was a change our school made as well, which I think parents are kind of hesitant sometimes to speak to, you know, their board of man- management or, you know, the, uh, their principal, etc. And it was a move that we made to kind of level the playing field in that you could buy things that were non-crested. We, we kept the colours of the school in their uniforms, but certainly everyone buys generic um, items and they're very similar. I mean, there, there isn't really any deviance from styles if you mm. go to Dunn's or Aldi or um, Tesco, etc. They're all very, very similar. So as long as you're keeping the school colours, we then were able to just purchase elsewhere, mm. which was, again, really, really good. Um, so that cost was lessened. So, you know, there have been moves made. But, I mean, certainly it was the case and this is only in recent years, I mean, I was still buying crested items. I mean, a jumper could set you back anything between 40 and 50 euro. And they've grown out of it by Christmas. Or they've lost it, PJ. I swear, I could have had a second mortgage in school jumpers. I I was at my wit's end. I was like, I could staple it to him. And it wouldn't it wouldn't make a difference. I really at one stage I thought that um do you remember the cartoon Batman years ago, you the old fifties one where they had the bat phone under the glass dome? The principal had that in his office specifically for me, ringing going, I'm missing another jumper and it has to be somewhere. There's only like hundred and twenty kids in the school, someone has it. How do you um, lose? How do you lose? You're wearing like, what, it to school. I swear, PJ, uh, a school setting, I liken it to the socks going into the washing machine when it comes to clothes. The pair goes in and one comes out. And it's always the way. Uh, school jumpers and lunch boxes would have been my Achilles heel. And uh, it wasn't until we threatened that they'd have to use their own pocket money <laughs> to Ooh. buy the item, repurchase it. But then suddenly they, they were able to hang on to it then. It wasn't too bad, you know. So, uh, but no, it is uh, like it is a, a big expense. And I don't think anyone could say that yeah. they don't feel the pinch during this month, to the, be honest. The, the, the shoes you mentioned... Uh, are, yeah. are, are, now, can you buy the shoes generically or do you have to have a particular kind and colour and style? Not at all. It's all generic. Um, and um, like ours are basically Dunn's ones and because uh, they kind of hold up. I, through trial and tribulation, I found that they kind of maybe last a couple of months as yeah. opposed to others that have just fallen to pieces. Ah, yeah. But, um, no, I think footwear is kind of, you know, across the board, it would be, you know, trainers on the PE days or when they're in tracksuit, and then they have to have, like, a plain black shoe. I don't think there's anything else, you know. Um, but similarly, I, I do think, though, that, that schools have given a lot of leeway. We had a situation last year where um, they were given a break from uniform of a Wednesday. Right. Um, which was which was great because it was an order that you could they were obviously thinking of, of hygiene, etc., um, given the current climate, that you could wash the uniforms. Um but so they were able to go in their own clothes. Now 
I know there's, you know, for and against. Yeah, for that are you pro or anti-uniform on an online basis? Um, I suppose, being honest, it, it wouldn't make a difference to me. But if I was to nail my colours to the mast, I would be pro-uniform, but that it would be attainable to everyone. I don't think it should be like this elite aspirational concept by any means. Um, you know, it should be affordable and attainable. I think it just creates an even playing field for the kids, you know, and um, now there are parents whose whose kids might be in attendance of schools that do not have a uniform code and, you know, be very pro that. Um, you know, I think it, it's, you know, it, it depends on your situation. And, um, but I do think the uniform is a good idea mm. um, for, for them. You know, I think they have enough pressure, especially when they get to older ages as well. You know, they're a bit more conscious and they're... Ooh. There goes the line. Lindsay, are you there? Hello? I ask Grant. You said that they get they get they get a bit older. Yeah, so like as they get older, you know, they become more conscious of, you know, what maybe their peers are wearing and you know, they might not want to then be you know Yeah, that line is playing up on us. I'm gonna leave it there with the Lindsay. Uh, thanks for that. That's Lindsay Woods there, she's on the cost of going back to school. Glad to know. Thanks, Lindsay. Glad to hear that they've seen sense in some elements of it that you can now get the the uniforms in Duns or Marks and Sparks or wherever you want to go for them generic uniforms and just the crested jumper <laughs> but they can, like losing the jumpers and, and whatever good luck with it I, I feel your pain, I felt it years ago uh, with books and shoes and uniforms and jumpers and uh, yeah, Kevin says secondary school jumper, shirt Sorry, jumper, skirt, shoes, PE kit and tie. All school branded, specific, 300 plus. Book rental, 140. Locker, 20. Homework diary, 10. Which is, carry the one. Yeah, that's just under 500 quid. Kevin, I hate telling you, mate, you're doing well there. You're doing well. Can we just talk? Opinion line on Corks 96 FM with McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Tell us about this uh, legend of a daughter of yours. Yes, so she's doing political science in UCC and she applied for and was accepted to do an internship in New York starting in January. So she'll be working for the Senate, the US government. Oh, that's fantastic. That's very exciting. You don't know you're going to have half a cork in JFK Airport going, listen, I know it's Elise Sinead. She walks for Biden. Casey and Ross in the morning with no DC cars Blackpool for Skoda in the city. A long-standing tradition in Cork. Open 24-7 at milldc.com. Cork's 96 FM. Head downtown, there is a protest outside the Opera House at the moment, started about a half an hour ago or thereabouts. We've talked many times on the programme about the performing arts and classes in the performing arts still not resuming for kids. They can play sport, but they can't go dancing uh, and they can't go to their stagecraft or, or any of that. And the performing arts educators of Ireland have gotten together today for protests both here and in Dublin. Trevor Ryan is the director of the Montford College. Trevor, good morning. 
Good morning, PJ. What's the turnout like? It's it's good. I think we probably have in excess of 100 people here and a lot of stage schools from around the city and county represented here this morning. We've been talking to them over the last couple of weeks and look, public health is what it is, but you guys feel that the pitch just isn't level. Absolutely, PJ. I mean, it's something that we're quite annoyed and crossed about. Uh, crossed about. I just feel that there's such an inequality um, a lot of these children don't have any interest in sport. They don't have any interest in, in outdoor activities. The performing arts is what they want to do. And we got three weeks last September, um, where again, and look, we're probably like broken records at this point, but we were operating very safely. Everyone was temperature checked uh, before they went to class. There was hand sanitizing before, during and after class. The, the studios are well ventilated and everyone is at least uh, two meters apart. So we were very safe. And again, you know, as you said, we're all part of this umbrella organization, the Performing Arts Educators of Ireland. So there's about 600 members. Um, and again, we meet on a regular basis, obviously via Zoom. But we, know, we don't know of one case or one outbreak in a performing arts school in, in Ireland since the beginning of this pandemic. Yeah. And we're looking here at speech and drama, ballet, Irish dancing and, yeah. and others. Yes, absolutely. And, and you can't track down one outbreak in a school. No, not at all. And you're looking at about between 250,000 and 300,000 students denied access to How their many former Trevor? classes. Yeah, that's what you're looking at nationwide. It's huge. A quarter of a million kids. A quarter of a million kids, yeah. <sighs> wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really awful. When I see the crowds going into Crow Park, and again, I, I see what's happening in hospitality and indoor dining, and I get it. And it's great and it's fantastic. And yes, we have to reopen and we have to resume society. But again, you know, we just don't have, um, you know, we're, we're, as an organization, we're small. Uh, we don't have a big voice. But we have tried in vain. You, you have a minister for the arts, Catherine Martin. What has, she, what has she been saying to you or have you been able to get to see her? Pretty ineffective, PJ, to be quite honest. It's the same old rhetoric. It's the same old spin. Um, again, we would have sent out emails to every government minister, every TD, every local councillor across the country um, about three weeks ago, looking for some engagement and, and some clarity on our sector. Um, and look, we got back a lot of personal emails and a lot of support. But I have to say, from Captain Martin's office, we got an email or we got content that was weeks and months old. Stuff that we got in the past. I really felt it was a kick in the teeth to us, to our mm. sector. Presumably what they're doing, and I'm only presuming this because I don't know, is that they're hoping against hope that they'll get the schools open in September without too much difficulty. Then they may come and talk to you. That's not acceptable, though. Um, I, think, I think the roadmap or the, those sectors that are closed, I think isn't there another announcement on the 24th or the 26th of August? I there assume is. we'll be included at that point. I suppose the problem for us is we would be due to open classes a, a week later. And a lot of us, um, we don't own our own premises. Um, we're relying on school halls and town halls and so on. And again, unless, we, unless we're named on Dove.ie, um, they won't let us in. And again, it's very difficult for us to kind of flick a switch and, and get everyone back into class. It just doesn't happen overnight. You know, there's some very, very large schools around the country and we need time to get organised um, and get back to class. This is exactly, when talking to Matt McGranahan last week from the Music and Entertainment Association, he's saying, 
right, give us a date to work towards. Is that what you're looking for, Trevor? A date to work towards? Exactly. That's it. That's what we need. Mm. And as well as that, of course, these are businesses we forget. Well, this is it. I mean, in my own business, I have a studio on the South Link Business Park, two stories, 7,000 square feet. I've been paying rent for 17 months um, and I've been open for three weeks. And have you had supports for that? There is supports out there, certainly. And again, I'm very grateful for those. But again, I mean, they, you're, they're really only scratching the surface. They don't cover the bills, do they? No, no, not at all. Right. So a date. And like you said, there is an announcement due the, the back end of August. And, and I think today's protests in Cork and Dublin, the aim is to get a, written into that. And supposing, and I, I put this to Matt McGranahan as well last week, you remember what happened with the pubs when they were given a date of the 5th of July and then things went a little bit pear-shaped so they held off until the 19th and then the 26th of July. So are you prepared to say, look, give us a date and if things go a bit, uh, go wrong, we'll, we'll hold out for a while, but give us a date anyway. Absolutely, give us a date. But again, I mean, it's, it's, it's apples and oranges. I mean, we're completely different, as you know, obviously, to the pub sector. I mean, again, we're, we don't have people sitting indoors for three or four hours or whatever it is, drinking pints, eating food or whatever. The kids are in their own pods of one. They're in class for 55 minutes. That class leaves. We sanitize all the equipment uh, and then we bring in the next the next class. Okay. All right. Trevor, see how it goes today. I think Maureen is down at that uh, protest as well. So we'll catch more of that on the news uh, during the afternoon. Trevor Ryan, Director of Monfort College, the Performing Arts Education educators of Ireland getting together. They would be ballet and speech and drama and dance and Irish dance and getting together to ask the government, look, give us a date, give us something to work towards. Just as I was talking to Trevor there, a most upsetting piece of film coming in from Richard Engel, uh, a journalist, and this is a picture of a plane, it's video of a plane taking off or attempting to take off from the airport in, I'm assuming it's Kabul. It's a massive US Air Force plane. And there are people running along next to it as it taxis up the runway to take off. And there are people climbing up onto it to try to get out of the country as the Taliban take over. It's very, very distressing. Hundreds of people around the the, the bottom of that plane. And there's another piece of film going around. It isn't verified yet, but there's a piece of film going around of a plane actually having taken off. And you know the way they take off and then they turn to get onto their flight path. There's a picture going around of at least one person falling off as the plane. Oh my God, it's it's awful. It's like something you'd have seen in 9-11. 1850 715 Can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie All the stars on one show. This is Duralipa. Hi, this is Tiesto. Hi, this is Shane Conn. Hey, this is Anne-Marie. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. This is Joe Corey. I go by the name of The Weeknd. 
The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks on your radio. Weeknights from 8. With Newmarket Motors Volkswagen. Test drive the all-electric ID4 at Newmarket Motors or visit newmarketvolkswagen.ie for more. Corks 96 FM. Corks 96 FM. Wishing the Rebels the best of luck in the All-Ireland Final. Yeah, just got that picture in front of me. It's a piece of a short clip of of video and it's of a plane taking off from the airport in Kabul and people literally, they were clinging onto it, falling off as it circles to leave as horrendous. And then there's another piece of footage has turned up of an Apache helicopter which is being, I don't know if it's being flown or going on a sweet, what way, it's moving down a runway to try to clear people off the runway so that a, a, a departing plane can leave. It's it's just horrendous what is happening uh, in Afghanistan at the moment. On the arts, Neve says, why can gymnastics and taekwondo go ahead and no dancing? It's a disgrace. There's more heavy breathing in my daughter's gymnastics class than there is in her dance class. Keep going, everyone. And Tom says, delighted to see the arts fighting for what they deserve. You'd think Michal Martin would be behind them too, considering he's the best actor in the country. The Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. With localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths and more with a 12-month guarantee backed by Board Gosh Energy. Yeah, your last day of voting. We close polls this evening and then the awards will be announced. I believe we're doing them Friday. It'll be announced here on Friday, the 2021 Cork's 96FM Best of Cork Awards. Go onto the website, 96FM.ie, look for the awards section, find the individual categories, go into the shortlist and cast your vote. If you were voting for Best Breakfast, then you might want to go for Tony's Bistro or the Liberty Grill or Lab 82 or Market 18 or the Perry Street Cafe. And in the Best Hotel category, you might be casting a vote for the River Lee or Fulton Island Resort, or the Imperial, or the Kingsley, or the Dean. The best of Cork Awards with localheroes.ie. Find trusted local plumbers, electricians, locksmiths, and more with a 12-month guarantee, and all backed by Board Gosh Energy. The awards presented by Cork's 96FM. Do you know, you wouldn't know what to be up to these days when you're communicating, either on social media or on WhatsApp or whatever platform you choose to use. We've all been using emojis and things like that. You put a smiley face at the end of it, or you might put a... There's a lovely little pile of poo. Have you seen the poo emoji? I love the poo emoji. Uh, you know, what a poo day at work kind of thing. But now we're being told that we need to cop onto ourselves when we are using certain emojis. It would appear that, you know, the little smile, the little harmless enough smile um, that you put into an emoji. That apparently is not a harmless little smile at all. Some people see that as patronising or as passive aggressive. There's a great buzzword these days. Everything is flippin' passive aggressive. I wonder if anyone ever dare to define what it means but everything's passive aggressive or patronising or whatever so now if you put a nice little smile into an, uh, uh, into a message and send it to someone you could be insulting them you really wouldn't know what to do next 
would you? Harry McCann, good morning. The rules changed too fast for me, mate. Yeah, PJ, look, it's, it's difficult to keep up, I think. <laughs> What's wrong with the little smile? Yeah, look, I think emojis are kind of an interesting one, I suppose. So, like, a lot of people look at them as the innocence for what they are, you know, a funny way to communicate, you know, add a bit of character to a text message. But um, on, unfortunately for some, I think, and it might be a generational thing, sometimes there's a little bit more meaning to an emoji than, uh, than meets the eye. But what can be different than a smile? A smile is a smile. <laughs> I think it's all the context, you know, and I think this is what's happening. People are using, you know, as you said, the smile might seem friendly at first, but the smile could be a little bit more, depending on what, I suppose, the message is about or who it's intended for or what's the purpose of it. Um, I think probably the best example of an emoji with a different usage is your your eggplant emoji, which a lot of people will know as an eggplant, as a cooking ingredient or as a, yeah. as a household item. But, you know, they all have different meanings. And I think that's what, you know, the emojis are about. Unfortunately, some people are kind of missing it. I think uh, some people are misunderstanding it as well. I don't think there's too much of a reason to read into it. Mm. And sometimes it is what it is. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think an emojipedia is probably the, the best thing you yeah. can get at the moment. But there, there was a, you know, this one with, with the fella with the head to one side and he's laughing and he's in tears laughing. Yeah. Uh, that even got its own place in the Oxford English Dictionary. But now you, uh, you don't use it because it's seen as mocking. Yeah, and I think that that's this is the problem with the emojis in a certain sense that I think it's why people probably should avoid using them, especially in a professional manner, you know. Um, they, they do have different meanings to different people and I think some people can take it up the wrong way and it's, it's look it's the same thing as using just text language generally mm. I think it's look there's a, there's a time and a place for it so if you're texting friends or family there's probably no harm but if you're sending an important text message to a boss or a colleague it's probably best to avoid the uh, the sideways laughing emoji face yeah, yeah. and the, the old thumbs up that we all use that, that's been frowned on now as well TikTok if you go look into TikTok you drive yourself to drink very quickly at the, at the way the dis- emojis are discussed and dissected on TikTok like it's you'd avoid them in, completely to be afraid like let's look at the generations generation Z for example or, or the millennials versus generation Z they even look at, at emojis in different ways yeah, and look, there is, there's different contexts for them as well. So, like, if you look at one emoji, there could be three or four different, you know, there could be an urban dictionary aspect to it. There could be, you know, the, there could be naughty emoji aspects to it. There could be sexting emoji aspects to it. Or it could be just general and innocent. And I think, as you said, it's a generational thing because you, you often do get a text message with an emoji from somebody who's a little bit older than myself. And I go, I wonder if they actually know what the meaning of that emoji is because they've got the definite using in the right context. And it, well, hold it's just, on now, you see, you just said do they actually know what that means yes they do but uh, you've no, plunked another meaning on it <laughs> yeah and I think it's a generational meaning to it I suppose uh, and that's where the, the awk- awkwardness might arise um, is that there's two different generations interacting and one looks at it one way and the other looks at it the other way and they're all confused and then everyone's a bit unsure of what's happening yeah. but I think What's probably happened here as well is sometimes we look a little bit too much into these things. Yes. Um, and definitely from from my generation, we sometimes look at an emoji and see more than meets the eye when really there actually isn't anything there at yeah. all. You know, a smiley face, a like, smiley face, and we just need to move on. What age are you, Harry? I'm 22. Okay. So so you would fall into, you would fall into Generation Z? 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a snowflake, as, a, as they call well, it. Well, I wouldn't go there. You're, you know, <laughs> you can't, they can be a bit snowflakey, but you, Harry, stand out a bit. You've, you know, but there's also a, a kind of a thing out there now. Are you guys living too fast? Yeah, look, and I, I think you kind of have to question, I suppose, what's, what's the need for an emoji? Why can't you, you put what your feelings, your thoughts are into words? Um, and, and that's probably a, a bigger uh, conversation, I suppose, when you when you look at it. In the grand scheme of things, emojis have come in. We, we had texting language, you know, we used to do your LOLs, and, you know, yeah. instead of saying lots of love or laugh out loud or whatever it might be. And the emojis have kind of even narrowed that down more. You know, there is text messages. We often get the chains where there's three or four emojis, uh, one after the other, and it can mean a completely, you know, a full sentence in a sense. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it is, I suppose, it's probably just a progression of how we communicate um, as a generation. Whether it's necessary, I don't know. Personally, I'm not a big fan of, of too many emojis, maybe a thumbs up at the end of a text message, but it's only meant as a thumbs up. There's no, uh, yeah. there's no other meaning to it. Yeah. Harry, do you think that, that you live very, your generation lives really fast? Yeah, I think so. I think, look, we're part of a, of a world now that's ever-changing and is moving at lightning speed. I think the internet and technology has a huge impact on that. Um, you know, we expect everything now, um, whereas, you know, there's generations before us that were happy to wait for things. Mm. Um, and that impatience, I suppose, is, is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in the sense that we're, we're constantly moving forward and trying mm. new things and experiencing new like things. Like now the 30 years old. I mean, for goodness sake. Yeah. And, and it is, and look, when you look at it that way, you're going to go, yeah, you know, it, we're moving a little bit too fast. And I think that there's probably a certain approach to it as well, where we look at it and you go, you can't just enjoy what's happening here and now and have a little bit of a patience about the future. And like, it, it all does play into it. You know, there's pros and cons to everything. Technology has definitely sped up our world and, and I suppose sped up what we expect in life. But I, I don't know, look, you can argue backwards and forwards and whether that's good or bad. I, I think there's probably a middle ground there where we probably yeah. need to slow down a small bit, but, yeah. you know, that's up for debate. You mentioned the LOL thing, and, and that in it itself sort of, that spawned any number of stories, because to one person it means laughing out loud, to another person it means lots of love. Oh. Absolutely, and I, like I know from a generational point of view, even if you, uh, my mom would think LOL is lots of love, whereas I'd say LOL is laugh out loud, yeah. you know, and that that and that's confusing in a text message. You know, you throw that. Oh yeah, when you, you, you've heard the story, like you know, sorry to hear about your dad died. LOL. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if I, if I got that text message, they go, "Wow!" Whereas you, somebody else gets that text message, and they go, "Oh, that's sweet," you know. So it, it it just it just shows the difference, and I think we probably just need to clarify this a little bit more. Yeah. It's unfortunate in a way because well, you know. Do you know what? This isn't a new thing either. In other words, they say there's nothing new, Harry. There mm. was there was a speech one time that John F. Kennedy made, and he was to open the speech in in Germany or in German rather, and he had to take lessons on the particular pronunciation of one word because if he pronounced it if he pronounced it correctly he was fine if he pronounced it wrong he said I am a donut yeah well look he's probably in his position now I'd say there was a big importance here to get that one right because last thing you'd want to be doing is standing up and calling yourself a donut and <laughs> thankfully now my communications are never that serious I never have uh, I never have too much responsibility laying yeah. on my shoulders, yeah. um, but I think I might avoid LOL for now. To be honest, um, yeah. I think and the emojis I'll probably just stick to the the general meaning well, of the thumbs well, up. Well, for well, now. well, there well there's a thing when you're send, when you're putting an emoji in a message. I think that's very sensible sensible advice. When you're putting an uh, don't put an emoji in a message to your boss. 
No, and I, I think so. In professional communication, generally, you always say, if you're sending an email or you're sending a text message, you know, it's probably best to keep it as, as formal and straightforward as possible. And it's not to keep things professional, but it's to keep make sure that things don't get misunderstood. Um, but I think we also probably need to be a little less sensitive about these things as well. You know, we, we, we're very quick to assume the worst in people a lot of the there, time. There, 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 there is that, and you, you mentioned yourself, the snowflake generation, and, and, and there, there, is, there is a jump to take offence very quickly. When, if, oh, when, none is, when none is intended. No, and I think especially on social media nowadays, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Twitter, but you often find that people say things and, you know, there's no harm intended, there's no real badness intended, but instantly there's a crowd to jump on you and go, actually, you know what, this is this, that, or whatever. And I don't think that's necessary. So I think we probably do need to relax a small bit. We're all a bit tightly wound at the moment, especially what's, what's happened in recent months. And I think we just need to take a deep breath, look at the emoji, and take it as the smile that it's intended. Mm, yeah, and by the way, if anybody ever calls me a boomer, I'll drown him. <laughs> <laughs> you can be the boomer and I'll be the snowflake DJ. We'll be happy out. Harry, cheers. Take care. That's Harry McCann. 1857-1599. I read this in, I read this in the Times, uh, the, the London Times last week. I said, you know, you can't put a smiley face emoji into certain text messages because it'll be misinterpreted as being patronising. We soon won't be able to open our flipping mouths. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96 FM. Just on gatherings and social distancing at Croke Park at the weekend wasn't really a good example of social distancing. Plain to be seen on the telly. Was it 25, 26,000 in Croker for the big matches at the weekend? I think for the All-Ireland hurling final with Cork and Limerick next Sunday... It's 40,000, I think, in Croke Park. Now, Croke Park holds 83,000, but it's 40,000 in there next Sunday. I think I'm open to correction on that. Quick, quick, remind you, quick reminder to you, it's still there, the Back Garden Festival, still playing all of the biggest hits from your favourite festival stars with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. On the Quark's 96FM app, open the app on the phone. There it is down the bottom, the Back Garden Festival, or indeed go to 96FM.ie. You know the way some people say, uh, oh, I'm not really a very sporty person. Sport kind of isn't my thing, whether you're a, a boy or a girl. But a lot of girls would, would think like that. There's books being written at the moment about why girls drop out of sport. And Anna Geary uh, doing a, a television show about why girls uh, drop out of sport. But some some girls just don't consider themselves very sporty at all. I think that was you once upon a time, was it, Neve? Good morning to you. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Um. Why is it, do you think, that girls do drop out of sport or indeed don't get into it in the first place? Yeah, I think this issue, why it's so hard to to deal with is because there are a lot of different reasons and that it can be quite unique to the girl in question. So, for example, you know, if you've no role models in your life, if your mom, if your sister, if your aunts aunts don't play sport or aren't physically active, you know, you don't have that sample of it. Um, and then there are lots of hidden barriers that girls come up against, especially when they kind of transition from primary school to secondary school. In primary school, a lot of girls are active 
they go out into the playground, they're running around, so it's just part of their daily lives. When they move to secondary school, um, a lot of different things happen. You know, they start going through puberty, so, you know, things like their body image can take a bit of a hit. There's a lot of change in emphasis from, you know, competi- you know, it changes to be more serious. So you tend to join hockey teams or camogie teams and all of a sudden the emphasis is on, you know, winning and matches and that kind of emphasis on fun and enjoyment disappears. And then you have a kind of social pressures and, you know, um, maybe their friends start to drop out um, and they're saying, oh, well, if my friends are dropping out, you know, maybe I will. And there's kind of a social norm that, you know, girls start, you know, at 13, 14, 15, you know, going into the junior search, all of a sudden studying is really important and they're saying, I don't have time to be, you know, playing sports or, you know, the sports that are available I'm not into. And they just drop out and kind of people just accept that that's the norm. Because, for example, I think the, the stat is that only 7% of girls um, age 14 to 15 are currently reaching the recommended recommended levels of physical activity. Mm. They don't start or they drop out. Both of them are problems in themselves. Absolutely. So I think, again, it depends on what your definition of sport and physical activity is. And I yeah. know at move to be for myself and my sister, you know, our emphasis is always on being physically active. So whether or not you're on a sports team, but if you're going walking or cycling or if you like dancing or, you know, going swimming. So, so starting a sport isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all. The whole thing is, you know, being physically active and meeting people your own age. So I think a lot of, um, you know, kids and girls in particular are exposed to sport in the school context or, you know, extracurricular and there's PE as well. I think it's just, you know, sometimes what we value maybe in Ireland or as a society is competitive support. Are you on a commodity team? You know, do you play Gaelic football? And like that is not for everyone. Mm. So what we try to do is kind of redefine it and say, what do you like doing? Um, you know, and whether it's doing yoga or like kickboxing. And mm. it's just trying to broaden that definition to saying, if you're moving your body, that's great. That'll give you, you know, all the benefits of sport. It'll help mm. you build your confidence. It's competitiveness. Really it's, it sounds from what you're saying to me, Neve, that from for some people, competitiveness is a turn off. Absolutely. So there's been excellent research done on this um, in the Girls Active Project in DCU and Sport Ireland. And what the girls are telling us is that competitiveness turns them off being physically active. That they don't, like, obviously you have the girls who are really sporty and a lot of that sometimes comes from, you know, their family background. They might be into sports or, you know, and we really do support the girls that love competition as well. But what we try to focus on are the girls that consider themselves not to be sporty. And those girls often say that, you know, oh, I'm not good enough to play a sport. Right. So, I, run all, then, I run all day, but don't ask me to race. Yeah, exactly. You, exactly. You hit the nail on the head there. So it's, you know, and it's saying that's okay. There's value in just participating and enjoyment. And for me personally, like my background, Orna and my sister, who, who's my, the co-founder, it was really always competitive and loved the kind of race, whereas I always preferred like training with my friends rather than the matches, I get really nervous. Yeah. And I think that that was where we kind of came together and said, you know, what what is sport? What's the value in it? And it's the enjoyment and the fun and the benefits mm. you get. So, yeah, I think that it, yeah, competitiveness is a big barrier to sport for a lot of girls. Not obviously now there are girls who love it as well and yeah. we really support that. But 
Yeah. In so, terms of getting girls active, getting them to participate is key. Briefly, your website, move to be with a two in it, uh, move to be.ie. What's on that? And who should yeah, look at so, it? So, move to be.ie has loads of information for parents, for, you know, teachers, for anyone that has a teenage girl in their life that, you know, might be talking about dropping out of sport um, or, you know, might be saying, oh, you know, I don't really like it for all these different reasons. So there's loads of resources on there. And it's also, you can go on and buy our um, e-learning program there. So we are targeting schools at the moment, trying to get it into, you know, transition your students because they have the time and that's often when girls are dropping out. We also have individual programs um, for, say, a parent whose kids is maybe saying, oh, I don't want to go and it might help them navigate that. Okay. Move to be.ie with a two. Move to be.ie. Neve, thanks very much and good luck to yourself and Orna with that. A particular venture. That's it for today. The programme edited by Fergal Barry, produced and researched by Katie O'Keefe, and we shall see you tomorrow just after nine.